turn uh, to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 4. The, uh, <clears throat> the book of Acts is a meeting ground for two historic forces, the, um, the risen living Lord working through his people to build his church, opposed by the forces of darkness trying to dismantle it. Uh, this is the uh, historic battle described in Genesis between the seed of the woman, Christ, and the seed of Satan. Luke is such a masterful historian. He weaves together these, these two antagonists, the story of these two antagonists, all the way through the, through the book. In chapter 4, you have opposition from the outside in the form of religious uh, persecution, persecution from the religious establishment of that day. In chapter 5, opposition from within in the form of hypocrisy. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in chapter 6, uh, again, another story of internal uh, opposition in the form of an attempt to try to divide the church. So Acts 4 describes outward opposition, chapters 5 and 6, inward opposition. They have to do with the integrity and, and unity of the church. Now, uh, chapter 4... Uh, follows chapter 3. That's a very profound observation. I thought I ought to point that out. But um, it's important to note because uh, in chapter 4 you have a reaction to an action that the apostles uh, took. Peter healed the man born lame at the temple and then delivered a sermon which was in effect an explanation for this action. In chapter 4 you have the reaction basically of two groups. There is a two-pronged reaction, one from the religious establishment and then from the rest of the people. Let's begin reading with verse 1, Acts 4.1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly annoyed, actually, that's a bit better than disturbed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. First, a reaction from the religious leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple guard was the man who was charged with the responsibility for keeping order in the temple precincts. And the Sadducees, who were the majority uh, party in Israel at that time, they were the rationalists of that day. We would describe them today probably as uh, very liberal believers of the, from the far left. They, uh, they did not believe in supernatural phenomena. They uh, discredited most of Scripture. They did not believe in the authority of the, of the prophets. They mostly uh, looked to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, for their faith. They did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. And they tend to be collaborationists. They tend to tended to side with the uh, Romans. And their reaction was swift and very heavy-handed. It's always been interesting to me that many of the, the attacks against the church have come from the so-called church. Uh, I used to work with Young Life. And a friend of mine had a Young Life club in a little, little town in Texas, Duncanville, Texas. And we went into that area where there was no outreach to high school kids and uh, began to explain the good news to the Young Life, to the high school crowd in Duncanville. 
and kids began to respond to the Lord and things began to change. And immediately we encountered opposition, not from the local bar where you would expect it, but from the local churches. And I think it's because their vested interests were at stake. And that's what I think you see happening here. The religious establishment, the officials within the religious establishment, realized that their grip upon the people was being threatened. Luke writes earlier in his gospel that they crucified Jesus out of jealousy. That was basically their motivation. And thus it will ever be. I really believe that one of the great enemies of the church is the so-called church. We can expect opposition to come from religious people. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, some of the worst people, some of the most evil people are religious people who have a form of godliness but, but deny its power. Now, this was the first reaction from the establishment, religious uh, crowd. And then in verse 4, an even greater reaction from those who heard the message we're told that the number of men who believed and who were added to the church came to be about 5,000. Luke does use the word for males rather than the word for mankind here, which would indicate that he is talking about men, not, not using the term in a generic sense. I think he's referring to the heads of households. And he's saying that, uh, that men plus wives and children were added to the church. And I think we can conservatively estimate that some 15,000 people were added to the church on this historic uh, occasion. The momentum was building. They could not, uh, they could not stop it. As uh, Bob Dylan puts it, the slow train was moving. Now in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. They did wait until the next day. Uh, which was legally correct. That was a courtesy they afforded to the apostles that they did not grant to Jesus. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this group is what is called elsewhere the Sanhedrin, which was composed of the high priest plus 70 elders. This was the Senate and Supreme Court of Israel. These were the most intellectual, the most highly educated, the most powerful, influential people in Israel, most of them from the, from the upper classes. They were aristocracy. I think to see the contemporary equivalents, you'd have to think in terms of uh, uh, our uh, combined uh, U.S. legislature and the Supreme Court and the Joint Chiefs of Staff presided over by the President of the United States. It was that sort of gathering. And uh, there was pressure. Believe me, there was pressure on the uh, disciples. The names of some of the principals are given in verse 6. Annas, who was the former high priest, uh, he had been deposed by the Romans because of some alleged conspiracy, but he was still the power behind the, uh, the, uh, behind the high priest who was Caiaphas at that time, the one who was responsible for putting Jesus to death, and John, who was the son of Annas and who later became the high priest. He succeeded Caiaphas and Alexander, whom we don't uh, know anything about, and all who were of high priestly descent. The fact that he simply mentions their name without much explanation indicates that these were well-known people in the Roman Empire. And Theophilus, to whom this letter was written, would immediately recognize them as, as a part of, of uh, Jewish officialdom. These were what we would call today the shakers and movers. These were the really influential people in the land. And when they had placed them in the center, 
uh, as the trial begins, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, our English translation doesn't pick up the scorn that's in this uh, question, but if we were to translate it more accurately, it would sound something like this. By what right have people like you done this? In other words, what authority do you have to stand in the temple uh, area and, and teach the people? Who do you think you are? I don't know about you, but I, I find it most difficult to react to scorn. It's, it's much more difficult even than physical attacks. I just hate to be ridiculed, to be made light of. And that's precisely what they're doing to, the, to these two apostles. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man or for a good thing, a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved, literally, the, uh, the word saved in Greek has a double meaning, of both of health and of salvation, or of wholeness. And, and this is a, a deliberate double and tender. He, he means them to understand the, uh, this term in this double way, both as healing and salvation, because he's going to play on this word later. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is most remarkable to me how cool Peter and John were. They were unflappable. I'm sure that Peter's heart pounded, and uh, he probably thought he was going to uh, hyperventilate. Uh, I would be scared witless, and so would you. And yet what impresses me is his poise and his calm. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't resort to ridicule or sarcasm. He doesn't uh, return evil for evil. He's cool, collected, rational, thoughtful, controlled. Because, as Luke tells us, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled and flooded with the presence of God. There was a counteracting pressure, inward resource, to meet every demand upon him. The pressure was inordinate. It was more than a man could bear. But uh, there was within that counteracting pressure. For every demand, there was, a, there was an inward resource. And that's what, that's what Peter experienced. Now, I, I find that this idea of a filling of the Spirit is confusing to many people. There's a sort of mystique connected with that word that I think needs to be dispelled. Basically, it just means that uh, he was uh, filled to the full with God. And God was there as a resource to face whatever demand, no matter how heavy the demands, no matter how much pressure there was on, on Peter and John, there was a counteracting uh, resource. Peter said, I suspect, Lord... Here goes nothing. I'm counting on you. Fill me with your words. You probably remember Jesus' words. When they, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you should speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall say. Luke records that, uh, that promise in his gospel in chapter 21. Peter recalled that the Lord had promised. He would tell him what to say. 
and meet every, uh, every circumstance. And so Peter said, all right, Lord, here we go. Tell me what to say. I'm counting on you. And there was immediately that infinite resource that's adequate for every demand. I always think of it like uh, uh, deep sea diving. You know, the people who go uh, in the great depths wear special uh, gear. They are able to descend to depths that would normally crush a human being and withstand uh, thousands of pounds of pressure per square inch because they're connected to the surface with an air hose that uh, fills their pressure suit out and therefore they're able to withstand the pressure. They can go deeper than, they can go over their heads into deeper water than anyone could go because there is, there is a secret inner supply that's always available to them. Uh, whatever the pressure, as the pressure increases, they simply open the valve and there's greater and greater pressure within to, to withstand whatever, uh, whatever pressure is being exerted from the outside. And that's what the filling of the Spirit is. Whatever the demand, however pressed or pressured you are, you need not be crushed because there is, there is in Christ everything that we need to be poised, and calm, and at ease. And that's what we see in these apostles. Now, what Peter does is turn the tables on his, uh, on his accusers. It's interesting. When he, when he first begins, when the trial begins, he is on trial. When the trial concludes, they are on trial. He says, look, if we are on, on trial because of some good deed done to uh, this man, know this, it's Jesus who did it. You've got the wrong people. We didn't do it. It should be Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene, who stands here because he did it. And furthermore, you killed him. <laughs> now remember, he's standing in front of the very people who murdered the Lord. So he moves from his own uh, guilt, which he uh, explains away, to saying it's the Lord who's the culprit, to saying actually you're the culprits because you put to death the man who gave perfect health to this man. Incredible when you think about it. Here was a hopeless man who had lain crippled for 40 years, who was without hope. Jesus healed him, the very person that you put to death. And then he walks on common ground with them. He refers them back to Psalm 118. He is the stone which was rejected by you. And you notice it's in, in my translation, the by you, that phrase is not in capital letters, which indicates that it does not occur in the psalm. It was added by Peter in order to apply the psalm more specifically to them. Uh, back in Psalm 18, the uh, king, we don't know who it was, one of, one of the kings of Israel who wrote the psalm, was, describes himself as being surrounded by his enemies. He, he feels that the kingdom would fall. However, he reminds himself that God had promised to David and his descendants that their throne would endure, that though he appeared to be under attack, he was not really threatened. And by way of illustration, he says, the stone that was rejected by the builders, that is the present king, has been restored to its proper place by the architect. He's talking about himself, that God exalted the king to his proper place. But he was speaking prophetically. And everyone in Peter and John's day knew that this was a messianic song. It referred ultimately to the Messiah. And what Peter says is this, as he applies the psalm, that stone whom you identify as Messiah, who was rejected by the builders, and that's you guys. You did it. Has been replaced by the architect. 
and everyone in the room knew precisely what he was saying. They were the ones now who were on trial. And furthermore, as he points out, you put to death the only hope that we have, the one who brought salvation to the world. There is no, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This man lay without hope until Jesus saved him, made him whole. And the nation, he says, is without hope until they turn to Jesus, the Messiah, who will save you. There is no other name by which we can be saved. We don't need to wait for any other Messiah. That's his point. He's here. He's come. If you believe him, we'll be saved. Now, that verse troubles a lot of people. I, I find a lot of folks simply don't understand verse 12. They think that what Christians are saying is that we and we alone have truth and that no one else, no other religion has truth. But that's not what we're saying at all. You find truth in, in other religions everywhere. I, I, even atheists, humanists, have some measure of truth. A couple of weeks ago, I was flying back from the West Coast, and I sat next to a young Japanese lady who was visiting the United States for the first time, and we began to chat. I discovered she, she was a Buddhist. And uh, we talked about her religion, and I shared my faith with her. And as we talked, what struck me was how concerned and compassionate this young, this young woman was. She was very well-read, uh, very much involved in social issues in Japan, and concerned about uh, the plight of, of oppressed people everywhere, and a very compassionate, loving woman. It just struck me again that uh, here is truth found in someone else. We're not saying that truth occurs only in Christianity. We're saying that there is no other Savior anywhere else than in Christianity. There's no other name by which we can be saved. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one else who can save us. There's no one else who was raised for our justification. What we believe is that Christianity is not an admixture of truth and error. It is pure truth. And we can say that with, with real assurance. But we can also say that the uniqueness of our faith is Jesus. That's what sets Christianity apart from other religions. And that's why Peter says to the nation, there's no one else to wait for. There's no other name by which we can be saved. There's no one out, nowhere else to turn. He's the Savior. And if we turn to him, he will heal us. Now, we're told in verses 13 and following that the court made a number of observations. They saw first the confidence of Peter and John. They uh, did not uh, fall apart at the seams. They were bold, forthright. They weren't brash, harsh rude, they were kind, but very forthright. Uh, Disraeli said once of Gladstone, the British Prime Minister, that what bothered him was not that Gladstone had an ace up his, up his sleeve, but his infernal insistence that the Almighty put it there. And uh, that's, what the, that's what the court saw about these men. There, there was that rock-solid confidence that God was in control of their lives and all of history. They were unshakable, un, unflappable. They were like the Lord who orchestrated and organized his own uh, trial and uh, crucifixion. The whole world was going mad during that time. People didn't know what to do. They were running around like crazy, and the Lord was organizing everyone. He was the only one in the whole, in the whole courtroom who had his wits about himself, calm, peaceful, and poised, and that's, that's the way the 
apostles were. Secondly, we note that uh, they noted that they were uneducated and untrained men. It doesn't mean they were ignorant or illiterate. Uh, these men uh, were not. They were educated men. It means they were not educated in rabbinics. They hadn't gone through theological training. That's the point. And yet they knew their way around the scriptures. That's what amazed them. And, and uh, it, it says they noted that they had been with Jesus. In other words, they, they had the same uncanny insight into life, the same uh, uh, ability to perceive what works and what doesn't that Jesus had. And Jesus' ability to use the word to confound his, his opponents. They could never answer him. He had such uncanny, uh, an uncanny ability to see right through people and use the word with such effectiveness. They saw this about, about the disciples. And then finally they saw the man who apparently had been brought into this uh, hearing to give witness. And they saw that he had been healed and they had nothing to say in reply. Their mouths were shut. What could they say? Now, it strikes me that these are the three marks of any spirit-filled man or woman. There, there is uh, about a spirit-filled person that kind of calm and quiet. They don't have to push and shove and yell and shout and make their, make their, uh, and impose their ideas on people. They tend to be poised and relaxed and calm people. And secondly, they have uncanny insight into life. You lean from Scripture. They're streetwise. They understand how to, how to live and like it, how to make life work and uh, how to live uh, in, in, in this pressure-filled world. And thirdly, as Steve reminds us in his song, wherever they go, they leave behind the aroma of, of Christ. Things are changed. Burdens are lifted. Blind eyes made to see. Relationships are healed. Marriages are put back together. They make peace wherever they go. That's, that's the mark of one who is filled with the Spirit. Now, the... Sanhedrin really had nothing more they could say. They ordered them out of the council and began to confer with one another, and you have what amounts to a verbatim summation in verse 16. What, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You know, it struck me as I read through this passage that Luke probably got his information from the Apostle Paul, unless they published some sort of minutes or a congressional record or something. I, I don't know how Luke would know. But uh, you have a verbatim uh, report on the results of their discussion, which apparently came from Paul, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was sitting on this council. And uh, since there is no uh, punishable offense uh, that the uh, disciples had uh, done, they simply uh, they resort to the use of raw power in order that it may not spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And then they summon them back in, and they command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. In other words, we ourselves are witnesses of the veracity, the truth of this message. We saw it. We have heard it. We saw Jesus risen from the dead. We have to speak it. They had been commissioned by Jesus to preach. Peter says, you're religious men. You judge. Should we obey God or men? As for us, we must obey God. Now, you have to realize that they're guilty of civil disobedience. They disobeyed the government, disobeyed the government. And this is the same apostle who later writes that uh, we are to be in subjection to government in 1 Peter 2. 
Did he later change his mind? No. No. Human government is established by God to maintain law and order and justice, and therefore it has a rightful purpose in the world. It's wrong for us to try to overthrow the rule of government because without it, society would fall into chaos. We would tear each other apart given our fallen state. So we need government in order to maintain law and order and justice. We can't do without it. But government is not the ultimate authority. There is a higher authority, and it's God himself. And where government commands us to do something contrary to a clearly a clear, explicit statement of Scripture, a command of Scripture, then we must obey God rather than man and take the consequences. That's the basis for Christian civil disobedience. Where government commands us to act contrary to Scripture, we must obey Scripture. But we're not attacking government nor their right to punish evildoers. If we disobey, we must do so respectfully and we must be willing to take the consequences. The apostles later were beaten and thrown into prison, and almost all of them lost their lives because of their uh, violation of this command. You never see them disrespectful. I, I heard a Christian last night on television call one of our leaders an evil and wicked man, and I just cringed when I heard it because Scripture states very clearly you must not speak against your leaders, period. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, you don't find that the apostles ever spoke out against Herod, for example, uh, or any of the Caesars. They're, they were always respectful, and they realized that, uh, that there is a duly constituted authority to which we must submit, that government is there because God has called it into being, and to attack the principle of, of authority is wrong. And we must not speak against it. We must submit to it. But human government is not the highest authority. And when we are asked to do something contrary to Scripture, not our conscience, but our conscience ruled by Scripture, then we must respectfully disobey and take the consequences. And that's what the apostles did. They said, I'm sorry, gentlemen. God told us to give witness to this good news. We've seen it. We heard it. We've, we know that's the only thing that's going to save the world. I'm sorry, but we have to preach it. And they uh, then went out. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. If anyone should have been delighted at the healing of this man, it should have been the religious establishment. This man had no hope, and Jesus healed him. They should have been full of joy, but they weren't. They tried to suppress the movement. And again... Thus, it will always be. Don't feel discouraged when the world does not understand you and when they try to suppress the gospel. That's the name of the game. Wherever the gospel goes, people's lives, and, and, and is rightly understood, people's lives change, drug abuse, uh, drug, drug abuse is abated, uh, divorce is diminished, uh, the generation gap is, uh, is bridged, remarkable things happen. Society is better for it, but you will find that same society inveighing against it. That's the name of the game. Don't be surprised, Peter says, when you find that you suffer merely for the name of Christ. Uh, when I was working with students back in the 60s, 
I was working on a campus that was one of the most violent, torn campuses on the West Coast. And uh, students uh, ran amok through that campus, burning buildings. They burned the administration building to the ground, virtually destroyed the aerospace building. There was a great deal of violence. Uh, there was a large Christian group on campus, and we began to mobilize the churches in the area to pray, and then we would go out on the campus in the evening, and Steve Newman had a print press in his uh, garage, and we used to run off flyers and distribute them and talk to people and share Christ wherever it was appropriate. And someone struck on the idea in the middle of all of this of having a peace rally. And so there's a, there's a large uh, grass amphitheater there on the campus, and we... Uh, we were able to get that facility, and we brought in some outside music, and, and students shared their faith. And, and there were thousands, literally thousands of students who came to that peace rally. And the man who was in charge of the buildings, a man named Tom Bichetti, wrote me a letter after the rally to tell me how much he had appreciated the actions of the students. And he said, this is by far the most peaceful demonstration we've ever had and, and commended us for it. I still have the letter in my files. And I really believe, we were not the ones who did it, it was God working through these students, but I really believe that violence on that campus was reduced and, and finally came to an end because of the efforts of the Christians. They kept things calm. But a month later, when we went back to renew our contract for the room that we were using, we used the geology building for our meetings on Sunday morning, we were denied permission because they said it is inappropriate to have a religious group meeting on campus. And we were never permitted again to have a rally in Frost Amphitheater. And we did finally gain access to the geology corner, but uh, we never, again, were able to have rallies like that at, at the amphitheater. Now, you know, we tend to be bitter and to get upset and angry at that sort of thing, but that's the name of the game. We can expect it. Don't, Peter says, don't be surprised. People will not appreciate you. They never will. They won't understand your efforts are to better society. You will be persecuted simply for the, for the name of Christ. Now, we're out of time. But uh, let me uh, try to summarize the rest of the section through verse 31. They released the two apostles. They went back to their companions, reported what, it, what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, What a bum deal. What a bunch of rats these guys are. How could they treat us like this? No, that's not what they said. Lord, they say, you made heaven and earth. The word they use for Lord here is, our word despot comes from it. Lord, you are the totalitarian ruler of the universe. You're the king of kings, the ruler of rulers. Uh, Caiaphas, Annas, the Roman officials, they're not really in charge. You're the king. You're the creator of the universe. You made it. You sustain it. We have nothing to fear. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, the Davidic Psalm, where David uh, apparently historically was catching some flack. He was, he was under attack by his enemies. And uh, he asked the question, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? They were conspiring against David. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. David is speaking of himself. And uh, he describes the actions of his enemies. They were out to get him. 
They were conspiring against him, taking counsel against him, and they wanted to dethrone him. And he goes on in the psalm to say, but it's the Lord who has the last laugh. He holds them in derision. He will break the nations like, uh, like a vase with a rod of iron, he says. Therefore, nations, kiss the king, <laughs> submit to him, because God will have the last word. And then he applies that psalm to, his, uh, to their day. For truly in this city they were gathered together, the uh, word that's used in verse 26, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, the word for uh, the root from which Messiah is taken, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of the earth. That's the kings, the Gentiles, the people who devise futile things and who rage against the Lord's Messiah. And they did so in order to frustrate your purposes, but in effect they did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you see what he's saying? They wanted to frustrate the progress of the gospel. They wanted to put God to death to drive him from the earth so they could rule. But uh, their opposition brought about salvation. You see that? And that's a principle you find all the way through Scripture. It continues right up to this present day. Adversity brings advance. We look at opposition to the gospel and we say, what can we do? We're intimidated by it. We feel we're outnumbered, outclassed, outgunned. We're too few. What can we do when we're opposed? Well, uh, John and Peter and these early Christians realized that opposition was no problem. They didn't even take note of it. It's no big deal because the worst that man could do brought about the very best that God intended. Their opposition produced salvation. And uh, now he says, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. Well, thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. In other words, God, do it again, they pray. Make us bold. Increase the opposition so that uh, salvation will be the result. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken symbolically, I think, of the shaking of nations that would occur as the gospel was proclaimed. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just Peter and John. There's progress here. It moves from the apostles out to the church. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness, not to themselves, but out in the streets. They poured out of this room wherever they were meeting, onto the streets, into their shops, their offices, attorneys, carpenters, masons, whatever. And they began to proclaim the gospel, and they shook the world because this opposition became merely another opportunity for God to work. And that's the way we have to look at life. Paul, uh, when he was imprisoned in Rome, writes to the church in Philippi. The, uh, the Romans thought that they had put an end to this heresy because they put the chief statesman of the church in jail. And the church in Philippi was uh, concerned and overwrought, worried because Peter, or because Paul was no longer able to preach, and they thought that the Roman government had effectively shut down the church. And Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he says, the things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. There he is in his house, under house arrest in Rome, and he was chained to a Roman soldier. And these Roman soldiers were members of the palace guard, the Praetorian guard. They were the picked young men of the empire, the brightest young men, the most upward mobile men in the Roman empire. 
These were the men who became senators and eventually were the kingmakers of the Roman Empire. And they were chained to the Apostle Paul. And Paul ends his little book with the oblique reference, with an oblique reference to the fact that those of the house, household of Caesar greet you. These young men were going back into, into Caesar's palace and sharing the gospel. And these choice young men were finding Christ as, as Savior, and the church was growing. What the Roman Empire thought was suppressing the gospel became the very means by which it was extended into the heart of the Roman Empire and eventually throughout the entire world. So don't be discouraged by the pressure because there is an equal and counteracting pressure within. There is God within us, our indwelling, risen Lord, who's adequate for anything. That's why Paul says, thanks be unto God who always causes us to walk in triumph. Always. Not sometimes, but always. We may not see it, but by faith we believe. Let's, let's stand together, shall we? Lord, forgive us for our timidity, our tendency to shrink when the going gets tough. Teach us, Lord, that by faith we can get going. We can trust you and believe that every circumstance, no matter how adverse, is simply an opportunity to advance. We, like the apostles, know on the basis of your word that you're the sovereign Lord of the universe, that you will never be frustrated, that no one can ultimately resist you. Therefore, Lord, we ask that, like the apostles in the church, you would give us boldness to speak forthrightly the gospel and to live it out in the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.